Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Andrea Elliott. She's an investigative reporter for The New York Times and the winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize in Nonfiction for her incredible book, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. The book started as a five-part series for The Times, and it's about homelessness in New York, and it tells the story of a young girl named Dasani. Andrea reported on Dasani and her family for eight years, culminating in this book, a book that I loved so much I had to have Andrea on the podcast. We talk about how she reported and wrote this incredibly readable book, the ethics in journalism, and what it means to Andrea to be the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize in both journalism and letters. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Don't forget, our book club pick for September is The Trees by Percival Everett. Make sure to listen to that episode on September 28th with our guest, Lisa Lucas. If you love the show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. You'll get bonus episodes of the show, like our most recent one with good friend of the pod, Cree Miles plus our virtual book club meetups, our bookish discord, and a lot more. If those perks sound exciting to you or you just really want to show love for this little black woman run indie book podcast, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. Thank you to some of our newest members, TM Tate, Ashley Aluko, Emily Chalik, Marla Horton, and Jessica Musselwhite. Thank you all so much. And thank you to every single member of the Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Andrea Elliott. All right, everybody. I am so excited today. I have Andrea Elliott, who is the author of Invisible Child, which won the Pulitzer Prize. It's the reigning Pulitzer Prize champion of the world or whatever that is. Andrea, welcome to the Stacks. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was a lovely introduction. (laughs) I'm so excited. So I have to tell you just a quick story about how, how come you're on the show like almost a year after your book came out, which is I bought the book last year leading up to the holidays. And I was like, okay, everyone says it's good. I'm going to read it. I didn't read it. Um, As you know, I read for work. So sometimes I just like can't get to everything. But I was like, this is sort of up my alley. I love investigative journalism. I lived in New York, like whatever, I'll get to it. Eventually, I got to it like three weeks ago. And I loved it so much that I sent an email to every single person I knew at Random House and was like, 
this is the kind of book that I always want to do on the show. This is the kind of book that inspired the show itself. I started the show because I couldn't find people talking about uh, Heather Ann Thompson's Blood in the Water. And I was like, I want, I want to talk about that book. And I want to talk about how that kind of book comes to life in a way that's accessible and all of these things. And so when I read your book, I was like, I have to cancel someone else and move them later because I have to have Andrea on the show because this is why this show exists. So all that is to say thank you for writing a book that is just so exciting to me and thrilling. And I know that my listeners will love. That's such a an honor to hear everything you just said. I, I'm I'm a little speechless, actually. Oh. Thank well, it's you. True. It's true. Well, you're going to get to talk a lot, starting with the first question, which is always in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell everyone what the book is about? This is a story of a girl named Dasani who grew up in and out of homelessness, and I followed her childhood for more than eight years as she and her family navigated poverty, racism, and a bunch of other hurdles in New York City. It's a book about so many things, it's very hard to summarize, but at the heart of it is the story of this child who is trying her best to reach for something better than the life that she was born into. Yeah. I mean, this book, you're right, it is about so many things, which is, I think, what makes it such an incredible book as far as, like, as a reader grasping at the scope of what you've done. And I want to come back to scope because I have a lot of questions about that. But I want to start with the family and Dasani's family. And, you know, I've read the book. I read the notes. You know, I tried to do my research. I listened to you on other podcasts. And I've heard you say a few times, like, what was important to you about Dasani was that you found the right person who could narrate their life and explain to you and bring you into the story. Were there other things that you were looking for in the family? How important was it that they were native New Yorkers, in a sense, or that they were Black, or that there was a two-parent household? How important was that other stuff in deciding which family you were going to be a part of? I think with this story, I learned the lesson that I always learn over and over again as a journalist, which is to to question my own assumptions. I go in with an idea of what I think is the story only to find that idea upended. And that's because what's happening on the ground is usually something that academia hasn't caught up with. And Mm. what we do in the very beginning is we read, you know, a lot, we do our research, we talk to experts. And so I wanted what I thought was a representative face of a new story of poverty. I was looking for that family. And that family was a very different portrait than the family that I wound up following. Uh, The family that I thought I should follow would have been part Hispanic. I'm Hispanic. That would have made a lot of sense. Would have been smaller, most likely run by a single mom, juggling several jobs, hovering at the poverty line, newly homeless. This was a story that hadn't really been told um, in our pages, and it seemed very worthy like all of these stories are. Many months later, and dozens and dozens of interviews later, and many (laughs) children later, all I cared about was finding that kid who could pull me in and who wanted to talk and wanted to narrate her experience and, and had a lively and creative mind and humor and all the things that I have found over, over the course of my career are the things that make me want excited about the story and therefore 
transport the reader mm. into the story. And so Dasani's family was was totally different from the family that I thought I would find. Um, for one thing, they were not of mixed race. It, this was a black family, although Dasani does have uh, some Latin American influences in her lineage, which she's very proud of, but uh, one grandmother. But basically, the black family, married parents, a lot of kids, chronically homeless, chronically poor, all the opposite, basically, of the, the checklist that I thought was guiding me. Mm. And um, I'm so glad that that checklist flew out the window and that I was just following my gut by this moment that I met them because it turned out to be such an important story. And, yeah. and actually, I would argue the most worthy of any story I could have followed for so many years. Yeah. I mean, it's just so interesting to hear you say that. People who listen to this show will know I have this sort of fantasy for myself that I will one day be an investigative journalist. I have zero interest in actually writing anything. I just really am nosy, which is sort of how come this podcast exists. <laughs> but hearing you say that like you went in with this one idea and, you know, this one this this thing you'd imagine that you would write about and then realizing that, you know, the world had other plans for you. I just love that because it's a reminder of, you know, how many stories there are, how many different versions of things there could could be and that, like you said, are are worthy. Um, Being nosy is <laughs> the most, I would say, single most important skill that I possess. And I don't yes. know if it's even a skill. <laughs> I feel like I just, was just born this way and I'm really proud of it. It's who I am. Though sometimes I embarrass myself because I ask too many questions and people are like, are you the police? I'm like, no, I just want to gossip later. It's, that's what's going on. <laughs> Dasani's mother, Chanel, always calls me to this day nosy. Yeah. Um, I can yeah. only imagine if you're really, you know, you were really nosy. I heard you talk about the pens that you had that would record as yeah. you write the spy pens. Love, oh, yeah. love these. Okay, <laughs> let's talk scope. How consuming was this project? You're a reporter for the New York Times. Were you reporting on other things throughout? I know it was a story there first, then it became a book. Like how much of your life was this for the last almost 10 years now? This was entirely my life. This was all that I could do. And it was very hard to pull off because it was so all-consuming. And so it, I relied very much first um, uh, first on my, my job at the Times, which al allotted me more than a year to devote to the story. In its earliest iteration, it ran as a five-part series in the newspaper and was an extraordinary launch into the journey of writing the book. And I didn't really know I was going to write a book until – the story came out. I All I could do was that story. It's a little bit like what happened with the book. And then all I could do was the book. And then it came out and I thought, I'm not ready to let go of this. There's, mm. I've, only, I've barely scratched the surface. This was the longest investigative project that it had run up until then in the history of the New York Times. It was almost 30,000 words long. The newspaper wow. had never devoted that kind of real estate, so to speak, to one story. And Dasani was on the front page five days in a row. I don't, I can't think of another kid who's been on the front page five <laughs> days in a row of the New York Times. Right. And yet I felt I had scratched it, just barely scratched the surface. And so off I went into what I thought would be a few years and, and wound up being almost a decade of time devoted to following them. A lot of this was reporting. It really wasn't writing. It was deep immersion in their lives as things kept happening 
that I struggled to understand or had to scramble to make sense of. Because it started out as a story about homelessness, but then became a story about so many other things, going to your question about scope. And I kept feeling that I owed it to the story, to the reader, to Dasani and to her family. And also, I suppose to myself as someone who wanted to do the best job possible mm. with this, to stay the path and to really constantly feel uh, out of my depth. That's mm. how I felt. Um, I, was, I was just eternally in the mode of student, trying to figure out the history of welfare, trying to understand how food stamps function and the monthly cycle of family planning, just so many different things, the role of stress and sleep deprivation and hunger and even just noise, things like noise, just just constant uh, interrupted sleep and how that guides the trajectory of a school kid Mm -hmm. who is poor uh, compared to a kid who can sleep uh, properly and eat properly. And just, it was, it was this nonstop kind of um, crash course mm-hmm. in so many things. And, and the way I was able to do that was by applying for grants and fellowships. And I don't, I can't, I think I've applied for everything that's out there <laughs> at this point. <laughs> and it carried me through these, these were extraordinary um, opportunities that make books like this one exist um, from New America and Whiting and and others that I'm forgetting to name and residencies and stuff. So I I scrambled and um, did what I could to get through those years to get to the finish line. But yeah. it was all um, th- it was the most intense work experience of my my life. Yeah, I mean it's incredible. I mean you talked about a lot of the things that are in the book. One of the things that I really loved was how you went back into Sonny's family line and how far back you were able to trace the family and, and, you know, where they'd come from in the South and all of that. I found that to be really fascinating because I think, you know, one of the things that's special about this book is, yes, it's a book about poverty in New York City and ostensibly the country, but it's oftentimes, you know, when you talk about this, I think in the in the outro, in the conclusion, the notes or whatever, that it's, you know, about people's decisions or individuals or whatever. And sometimes it touches on the systems. But you've really brought this back as something that's like part of the fabric of America when you take it back to to slavery. You know, you take it back so far, you understand that this is not something that can change overnight. And and I, I just really appreciated that a lot. Like I just, that, that section of the book, I think was for me when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this isn't a good book. This is like something really substantial and meaningful. So I'm, I'm glad that you took on the scope and I'm grateful to all of the, the fellowships and residencies for giving you, um, that space for sure. You know, that dive into history is something that, we should always do, right, uh, mm-hmm. whatever we're writing books about people. But it gets to be laborious and it, it's hard. And I'm not an historian and I, I'm not a genealogist, so I had to, to get a lot of guidance. And But the, the the most important guide in all of this was Dasani's family. And it's it's so striking to me because, of course, that is that was one of my, my greatest – aspirations when we found out about her great-grandfather was that people would begin to be able to see her story as part of this larger narrative. But it was so clear to them all along from the moment I met them, they were saying to me, the truth of our lives is in our history. 
-hmm. Our poverty is the outgrowth of so many injustices going all the way back to slavery. We, We spent hours... Hours and it was almost a daily uh, topic of conversation. And I often, some days, I would spend up to eight hours with them. So maybe it came up for a few minutes here or there. But it was always in the air this focus on America's past and its deep past. It's the history of hundreds going hundreds of years back. And I was struck by that because this was 2012, 2013. We had yet to enter into the kind of national reckoning that uh, has been more more present um, in right. terms of talking about slavery, talking about race in recent years. And, and yet it was so, so, so present for them. And so I, I really think that I did that because that's, that's who led me there was the family saying. Yeah. And, and then also just the sense that history weighed so heavily and at the same time because of so much upheaval and trauma and serial displacement, documents, records had been lost. And all that was left was, was often this oral history. And it was a very imperfect oral history, as oral histories tend to be. Right, right. And so one example of that is the story of her great-grandfather, Dasani's great-grandfather, who in the very beginning was presented to me as a kind of guy who drank a lot and had crazy stories to tell about a distant war that no one believed he fought. And that just led to a, well, let's see, kind of on a lark. Let me reach out to the National Archives, see what what they have. Months later, many months later, in came this trove of documents that laid bare this extraordinary history of his early life that no one, that was not known to the family. And this is the kind of thing you think if every family had the ability to look deeply, right. we would have such a rich sense of even just this block where Dasani was growing up in Fort Greene. But these these are lost histories Yeah, often. It's so true. I mean, it's interesting that you say that the family always knew that, you know, I'm black and my dad's family is from the South. And there's a lot of stories and things that were always present that are, you know, it's, we can't prove it. You know, that's all part of it, right? Part of it is that we don't have the documents. It's all oral history. It's things that we know and have been taught, but can't for sure say, which is, I think, sort of what allows black people to be taken advantage of or to be abused in certain ways. It's because you can't prove it to the standard of white supremacy or whatever that that being is that needs the proof or whatever. Okay. This is what I want to talk to you about. I think we're going to spend a lot of time on this because, as I mentioned, I want to be a journalist, fakely. I just want to ask questions. Uh, (laughs) But when I finished the book, I kept thinking about the ethics of journalism, right? I kept thinking about, you know, in this case, you. But because this is my favorite genre, I think about so many journalists who have done similar things, have been in similar places. I talked about this with Heather Ann Thompson. It's like... (sighs) How I know, you know, in the book you mentioned, you know, there were times where you would take them out to to eat food because you could, you were allowed to do that by the rules of journalism and that sometimes you broke the rules and you gave money here or you did things there. But I'm just sort of wondering, like, should these be the rules? Should the rules be different? Because obviously in this case, it feels like you should be able to do whatever you want and buy them a house if you want. But I know that if it was some other person and you're doing a profile of like some bad guy or something like I wouldn't want you paying them, you know, like, and so I'm wondering kind of how you look at it as a person who's in this world and you, you understand those dynamics so much better than I do. 
this is something that to this day I wrestle with. And I think it's probably the most important question we could discuss yeah. in this in this conversation. Um, I came into this with a very traditional reporter mindset, I think, even though I'd been doing immersion reporting for a while when I began the reporting on Dasani's life, I still had the sort of traditional rules of the newsroom in my mind. And I was working for the New York Times and therefore it made it easy to say, these are the, this is the newspaper's rules, right? So Mm -hmm. you're poor, you need money. I am here trying to write about your poverty and the rules are that I cannot give you anything for your story. And I hope that you'll still allow, allow me in. And I hope that you will see that there potentially could be a kind of greater, broader sort of benefit um, to society for letting me tell your story. That saying those words to someone who is suffering daily and probably doesn't even have the bandwidth. And I'm talking about, not even about Dasani, I'm talking about her parents, because that's who I had to find an inroad with in the, in the beginning, of course, and, and that's whose trust I needed to gain. To say that to them just always felt really unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I wasn't really, I knew that they, they knew I had a script that I had to repeat and I knew that they knew that. And there was this sort of unspoken, but come on, mm-hmm. it's your job. You, and, and academics go through this all the time, by the way, you know, it's your job, it's your career rests on finding this research doing, and you're getting paid basically right, right. to, to tell these stories about someone else's material lack. So there's a material gain for you in observing somebody else's material. Like, how do you reconcile those two things and even feel okay? In the very beginning, I mean, maybe some of this is in retrospect. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I, it weighed on me as much as it did. But I think in the very beginning, I just felt more like nervous and careful to make the rules very, very clear. And only later did I start to think about it from really from their perspective. I never changed the rules, although, of course, I am human. And so, yes, there were times when I did help them out and I I couldn't imagine doing otherwise. But that's not to say that I don't think the rules should change. And I'm, this is something that I'm I'm hoping to focus on in my next phase of my work is what should the rules be? You know, we are allowed to take our sources out to eat and pay for it. That is, um, that's just part of the rules. Well, when your source is hungry, that becomes a transaction. Right. Right. And so I don't have like a, a very good answer. The, the thing that I would say is that we never stop talking about it. And I would square with them early on that this was, um, I understood that it it's probably felt uh, hypocritical or frustrating to them or reason enough to not even let me in that that they would stand to gain nothing material from from letting me into their story. Now, that said, when the series ran, funds did come in, a trust was created, the family opted to have that money 
sort of stay uh, safe for the future for college and so that they could keep their public benefits. So that was their decision and I had nothing to do with that trust. But the story that I wrote resulted in this uh, small sum of money going to the future of their children. So right there already, they could see that something could potentially benefit them. I did, as I've written about in the afterword, decide early on that if the book should ever generate proceeds, that they should be meaningfully shared with the family. This is their story. And of course, I I think it is really important to, after the reporting is done, I would say, and when it's kind of uh, something that is, you could say the process is over, there's a conclusion that you can feel in the air. It, I think that is the time to make it clear what your intentions are. I think if you do that early on, you then create a financial incentive that takes away from a person's independence and ability to say no or their own feeling of agency. It's really, really complicated. It's like, it's just, there's so much to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's even preparing for this conversation. I, I have, I have like 20 more questions about this and I'm going to ask a few more, but it's just like so overwhelming to sort of think about because it almost feels like the what's in place doesn't feel quite right, but other options start to feel like they could be taken advantage of and they could, you know, muddy the waters and all of these things. But I'm wondering for you, like sort of on a personal level, if you don't mind sharing, this might be too personal so you can tell me to fuck off, but <laughs> how does it feel to you to be, you know, celebrated and to win prestigious awards knowing that your work was allowed to you because this family that because they were poor, because they were struggling, because, you know, and, and also because they said yes, like without them, who knows, maybe the story isn't as compelling, not that you're not a fantastic writer, but it feels like if if it were me, I know I'd have a lot of big feelings about that. So I'm just curious sort of how your success feels as sort of connected to so much shitty stuff. <laughs> it, it is bittersweet, I would say. And uh, I think, first of all, the first thing I told Dasani when the book won the Pulitzer was that that money was hers. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel that I could keep that. The Pulitzer as a, a concept meant very little to her, actually really meant nothing to her. <laughs> she yeah. could care less about the Pulitzer. Now, the thing that really mattered was when Barack Obama chose mm. this as one of his favorite books. That was her Pulitzer, she's jumping up and down. <laughs> but if funds come to you, the author, uh, with a prize for a story about a poor family, I think it is, um, and maybe every situation is different. I personally didn't feel right keeping that. Mm-hmm. And yes, I stand to gain professionally from this. I, I will say that during the course of the many years that I worked on this book. There were moments when I wondered if it would ever come out or anyone would ever read it. Really, right, I mean, right. I, I did not have the sense that it was going to be a success necessarily. I just I just couldn't stop working on it until I felt that it was ready. But right. that didn't mean that I expected this. And yes, I think for me, the only way to feel okay with the success that has come with this book is to share the the platform in as many ways as possible to 
bring Dasani or Chanel or both to events to um, have them speak for themselves, to share in the prizes, to share in any proceeds or even really more than share. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope proceeds come. I really do because I, I want so much to see what uh, can happen for this family if if they were able to to move forward financially in a way that they haven't. Right. But, you know, it's just – it's such a surreal conversation to be having, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just um, – It's and, sort of and, like big idea. It's like a big idea, but for you and for the family, it's like very – literal you know like for me it's something that I'm like musing about but it's for you it's something that you're like in in the world of absolutely and I guess what I would say is that I feel kind of rocked by the bravery that they showed in opening up and letting me inside uh when I said that Chanel considered me nosy I mean this is a world, Chanel's world of Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s and up until today, where it's dangerous mm-hmm. to answer questions. Mm-hmm. It's not just like irritating. It's actually something that you're trained not to do, that you, you know, you keep your your walls up. And to break those walls down and actually be vulnerable enough to let a person in who's there to make your story public is I think was unthinkable to them at the very beginning. And I didn't know how deep it would go, but our conversations were kind of uh, forever conversations. They never seemed to end. I was endlessly fascinated in their story. And I I do think that that is what opens people up more than anything is just the person who's willing to listen and who cares and who's interested. And, And so it's a very... It's a very close bond that I have with the family as a result. Right. Did you ever sense like in the beginning that there was difficulty because, you know, you're you're white, you're Chilean and American and you are white presenting. And I'm wondering, yeah. like, was that was that part of it difficult? And, and how did you navigate that if it was? It was very difficult. And in the very beginning, I was only white. I was they knew nothing about me except right. my whiteness. And they even said so. I met them standing outside a homeless shelter in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And for many days after that, I would return and wait because Chanel's phone was always off or, you know, or she'd lost it or there was no way to reach. There was no way to find them except to show up. And she would send her kids out to the front and say, check if the white lady's there. (laughs) I'd be like, yeah, ma, she's there. Like, oh, God. And finally, just like she just decided to 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 take the next step with me, which is to go to the park and let me interview her. But right. I had to go back again and again. And I think, yeah, I mean, I was definitely um, a person to be suspicious of, a total outsider. Um, as she later explained it to me, somebody who could either be a snitch or a quote-unquote do-gooder. Those are the two forms of uh, white people that she knew to be mm-hmm. around the neighborhood. So I might be a social worker or a cop or I might be a teacher or a nun. And either way, I wasn't of the place. I was coming in from the outside with some kind of agenda. And I think and that was her experience and that was also the case, right? I did yeah. have an agenda. I was there to, to try to report the story. And 
I think that because so much of this book, Invisible Child, and the story of Dasani's upbringing and her family's experience in New York City is about the encounter between Black America and white America, that the fact that we were different was a way to keep that very present and alive in our conversations mm. from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it was a very blunt <laughs> subject that was um, discussed with a great deal of candor from from the first moment that I got to talk to Chanel. And, you know, she referred to white America as your world, your world, people in your world, people, your people versus my people. And I, th- I can't remember when it was, but if maybe a few weeks in, she heard me pick up the phone and I was talking to my mom in Spanish. And I think we started arguing because we were always bickering. <laughs> and I feel very close, but, you know, typical um, relationship between mothers and daughters in Chile. Yeah. And Chanel just loved that. She loved it. She, she, she just made me relatable to her in a way that she probably hadn't seen up until that moment. The other thing that made me relatable was that I was a mother. And I had um, a one-year-old and a three-year-old at that point, And I talked about them a lot. And so those were the things that made her... I think, give me a chance, at least start to see past skin color as the only thing, right? And maybe beyond that to other things. Like, and, and she even said, you know, in her own words, you know, you weren't all white because you were Latin. You know, that's what I realized, like you were Latin. So that made it, that made it better. <laughs> right, but right, I'd right. like to think that even if I was like this blonde girl from, I don't know, was somewhere in Wisconsin, that, that, that it's not a, it's, that with enough persistence, any reporter from any background, a black reporter, a Latino reporter going into a very white story, whatever our, our life story is that we bring up to that moment in, into the next uh, adventure of uh, this other world that we're trying to write about, whatever that is, it should never stop us from trying to step into this other world, right? And that's, that's what I think it is, is the job of, of journalists is to not stay in our own lanes, right? And if I were to always write about people like me, it would be a very limited population. So I think I've been drawn forever to the stories of others, um, but it is not easy. And it comes with a huge amount of responsibility and and really the need to be humble, the need to be um, ready to constantly second guess everything you think and be mindful of your blind spots and, and think about your own lens these are the tasks of the journalist in whatever area the journalist is in and whatever the story might be that you're just, it's important to, to be aware of yeah. what makes us different, what makes us the same. Yeah. I love this idea of the journalist because you know, you're alive now, you know, that things are, the journalist has really changed. I think from this idea of the journalist to what, journalism has become in a lot of ways and and what people feel the job of news etc is I do want to ask you about sort of the I don't know if negotiation is the right word but sort of like the negotiation between Chanel and and Supreme and you for for access to their underage children because I feel like that's a whole different 
element. It's not just can I follow you, Chanel, an adult woman. It's can I also have access to to children, some as young as, you know, little babies. And so I'm wondering, like, I, I know that in the book you mentioned that both Supreme and Chanel are big readers and you gave them your work um, to see. But I'm just sort of wondering, like, were there things that they said, you know, this is off limits or we would prefer if it didn't go here or that you said, I won't I won't do this. You you can have my word that this won't be part of it. Or, or was there a negotiation or was it just a yeah, sure, let's do it? One thing I learned early on in following the lives of these children, because this was new to me, I hadn't really done immersion mm-hmm. in, with children was that you almost have to protect them from themselves Mm. because unlike their parents who have access to information, the ability to make uh, informed decisions, ability to judge things based on their own wisdom as adults, even though they were stressed, and I mentioned that earlier, and so they were under a lot of stress themselves, they certainly had the agency of adults, whereas children don't really know what's going on. They don't really understand what a journalist is necessarily, especially a five-year-old. Papa was five. Uh, the child that the book begins with. When I met them, Lily was a baby. And I wanted to tell the story of child poverty through the experience of one kid, in part because so much of reporting around poverty tends to be overshadowed by the debates around adult responsibility. Right, right. And so my answer to that was just keep the adults out and focus on the kids. But I don't think even I understood what that would entail emotionally, um, ethically, um, just as a human being trying to report this story as a mother, as, as a journalist. It was something that tested me daily, and uh, it was – at times deeply painful to see what they were going through and very frustrating. And I also learned early on to be very uh, clear about the language around our arrangement. So off the record doesn't mean anything to people who are not press savvy. <laughs> you, right. know, you know, our rule was if this is private, tell me it's private. Everyone knows what private means. Yeah. And yet I never heard the kids say that ever once. And so that's, you know, when the series ran, which was about a year into this, I think up until then, I I would say I didn't really witness anything that seemed like it would get the kids in trouble with their parents, for example, or something that we really had to protect them against. But I think that as, you know, they grew up and as I continued to follow them and understand who they were better and better, it became important to me to see them reckoning with the book at different stages of their own mm. development. And it, by the time the book came out, Dasani could sign off on it as an adult. She, you know, she was, she's now 22. And she, I, I think that that also helped a lot because one of the things that haunted me early on was this idea that these kids would understand in some very simple way what they were doing. They were talking to a reporter. Their their life story would be in the newspaper, but one day they would come to regret it. For that very reason, we kept their last names out of the newspaper, but their cover was ultimately blown by a politician, and um, there was no real way to protect them once they were on the front page of the New York Times. And so, yeah, it's that negotiation with Chanel and Supreme 
very much in the early days was an intellectual exchange. Uh, they are self-taught. They're very proud readers, and they loved reading my work. They, I did, had done a lot of work on Islam, and they, um, they wanted to engage with me on on those things. Mm-hmm. And I think they were excited. They were excited that I might give their story similar kind of depth, potentially, um, and attention at least, that I, as I had these other stories. And I also offered to connect them with the people I'd written about, um, which was kind of risky. And when I think back on that, I'm like, wow, <laughs> what, if, what if they had actually followed up, but they didn't? But I was ready to put them on the phone with the imam that I had written about. Um, I did a three-part series about an imam that ran in 2006. You know, ask, ask these, anyone you want, was she fair? What was it like? Did the story match your expectations? I have long tried to ensure as best as I can that whoever I'm writing about is not surprised by what is published, that they know what's coming, and that that we've had enough opportunities to discuss it, to debate it, to reconsider it. But obviously with the understanding that I do have editorial control. In this instance, though, because it was such an intimate story and it went so deep, I think that it just felt like a very different kind of project. It wasn't, I read the entire book to Dasani. It took five days. I didn't trust her. You know, she's at the time, I mean, she's always on her phone. I have a teenage daughter now. Um, I would not trust, she still hasn't read the whole book. I. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, tension spans are short. And I also wanted, I felt I owed it to Dasani because some passages are very hard to read, you know. And I felt I owed it to her to read it out loud to her and to see her face and to sit with her in it and to talk through certain uh, turns of phrase potentially that she might not understand or or things that she th- was part of the fact check process. But it was also, I think, a part of feeling like, I had abided by my role of mm. the person not feeling surprised. She actually heard the whole book. Wow. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, we're back. Um, So speaking of Dasani, how is Dasani? Will there be updates on her? Would she ever want to tell her own story in her own way? Do you have any idea about that? I think she'd love to have a podcast, and oh. I would be more than happy to connect her to you if you're interested in mentoring her. Yes. She is enrolled in community college. She became the first in her family to graduate from high school and go to college. She's had jobs here and there. She's I, The way she most recently put it to me is that she's surviving. And, you know, hers is a life that is filled with ups and downs. It's really unpredictable. She has had two major changes occur in her life that I think are indicative of what really needed to happen always in order for her to feel like she could thrive. Mm -hmm. One was that she was reunited with her mother after being separated and put in the foster care system. And the other is that she has a permanent roof over her head through Section 8, which is federal uh, housing program that only serves about 3% of Americans um, as we are in the midst of such a terrible affordable housing and homelessness crisis in this country. But she's got those two things in place and for a, a long time she didn't. And I think that's made all the difference. Yeah. Just to know she's with her mother, she's safe and she's in a home that is hers is major. Yeah. This is sort of a surface question, but it's important to me because it was meaningful to me. The cover, how involved were you in that? I think it's one of my favorite covers in the last, I don't know, 10 years. It's just so striking. Uh, It's so good. I just am curious if you were involved at all or. Thank you. Yes. There was a very beautiful collaboration. Um, Random House did a superb job with the cover. The image of Dasani is taken from a photograph by Ruth Fremson, the photographer at the New York Times who worked on the series with me. And so it's Dasani, which was important. I I felt was very important that it was her. And she also gave it her blessing. We weren't going to go with that cover without her feeling good about it. The paperback 
is a little different. I don't mm-hmm. know which cover you, are you talking about. I was about talking paperback? about the hardback cover, but I also really like the paperback. But the black on the hardcover, just like for whatever reason, really like resonated with me. Like that, that yeah. the contrast. But I do actually really like the paperback cover, and I was surprised that it was different. I think it was. I'm not sure why it changed. I love them both. Yeah, uh, they're very similar, but they're one is black and white and one is has color to it and Dasani prefers the paperback because she feels that even more of the sort of dimensions of her I would say her beauty she would say her her skin <laughs> her her being uh come come across in that and she she loves it but yeah no it's it's, it's just, they're both beautiful and I feel very very lucky to to have had this story come out first and foremost, um, into the world and then be packaged so beautifully mm-hmm. so that hopefully people read it. Is there anything that's not in the book that you wish was? I cannot say that there is anything that should be in the book that isn't. I feel grateful to have been edited as carefully as I was. And this is a long book. <laughs> um, it's a long book intentionally. Uh, I think it hopefully doesn't read long. People have told me it reads quickly, but um, it is the length of a presidential biography. And, <laughs> and when I say intentionally, I, I say that because I feel very much that Dasani's life matters every bit as much as the life of a president. And what we've, you know, what I think comes across with this book is that in this one life, you can see, you can learn so much about America, so many different ways. Yeah. Okay. We're going to do a slight transition because we always talk about this, about how you write. Where do you write? How many hours a day? How often is there music? Are you in your home? Are you in a cafe? Do you have snacks and beverages? Do you light a candle? Can you sort of set the scene of how you write? So I wake up very, very early. I drink a lot of coffee and I have to be in total silence. I would never, I've never understood the people who can write in a cafe. I just, Mm. I'm amazed that they're not like going crazy, the noise and the, and I used to be really good at noise because of course you have to be in a newsroom on deadline. But what I've learned about myself is I write best when I am in solitude and preferably even just physically separated from the temptations that would pull me out of my work. So that would mean being in a very rural setting, (laughs) like the um, farm where I was born and spent part of my childhood. I go back there sometimes to write and I'm cooking every meal because it's uh, very, it's many miles between that place and the closest store. (laughs) And so, you know, that kind of solitude and just deep, deep immersion is a version of the kind of reporting I do, but I do it as I write, which is just to immerse entirely, uh, write for as long as I can until I drop, um, wake up the next day and do it again. And I, I like doing it that way, but it's a kind of crazy way to work for some people. They, I, there are people who write maybe a few hours a day and they stop and then they do other things. That's not the way I am. When I'm ready to write, I feel like it's all I can do and I have to, I do it for spells and then I stop, but Mm. it can take, I've had several weeks like that where my kids are with their dad and I am entirely surrendered to the process (laughs) of my work. Any snacks? Well, (laughs) I have this weird sort of um, 
you know, contrast between the first half of the day where I'm really good and then the last second half where I'm terrible. So I start out with like healthy things and I hydrate and I drink coffee, but I, you know, I protein, nuts. nuts. And by the time um, we're past noon and into like, you know, mid afternoon, which is like slump time, it's I'm in the land of Doritos and Oreos. Yes. <laughs> like, That's when know. I'm coming over to hang out. <laughs> yes. That is the best, right? You, you, you need those things. I mean, you it's do. just... I, I couldn't, I could never be very healthy and right and survive. Yes, I love this for you. And um, then wine at the end of the day, wine. Oh, I always have a glass of wine. Good, 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 good. I love this. I love the progression. <laughs> um, <laughs> wait, so this was your first book. Do you want to write more books or are you feeling like reporting and articles and those things are, are your place or are you open to both? This is going to sound really cheesy, but your question almost made me think about dating. So <laughs> I I didn't know I wanted to write this book. It, the mm. book found me. I fell in love with the story. And that was that. I'm not looking <laughs> for my next book right now. <laughs> okay. But when I meet but when I meet that story, I know that I will yeah. be suddenly in the presence of my next book. I think in between now and my next book, what I really want to do is um long form journalism and and get as many stories out there as need to be told. That's that's where my my heart is. And I, but I very much do want to write another book. I just Not know ready. that I I know that I I will know when I'm when I'm when I meet that story. Yeah. When I, <laughs> I love that. I love this analogy. It's so good. Um, <laughs> I want to hear more about your journalistic future. But okay, we could I we can, can talk, talk about that. Um, <laughs> I don't have one. This You'd is be my a good journalist. I feel like so people some people have referred to me as a journalist before and I truly feel that that is the greatest compliment because I the reason that I want to be a journalist is because I read all the president's men which I feel like is like a very like straight dude who went to college in the 90s answer but it's true I was just so taken by that book and it's my favorite genre investigative journalism books like I just love them but I don't write. I just like getting like I'm just curious I'm just so curious and so I just always want to know what's going on so that's why I want to be a journalist but I don't ever want to write a thing ever <laughs> well the, journalism can exist in various forms yeah I feel like this pod people say this podcast is journalism I appreciate it when people say that I don't know if it's real but it makes me feel nice <laughs> you're getting some Good information out of me. So I yes. would agree. I would concur that this is okay. definitely a form of journalism. And you've won two Pulitzers. So that means a lot. Okay. You know what good journalism is. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Wait, I do want to talk about the Pulitzer. What does it mean to you to win? And does winning it twice mean something different than the first time? Does it have a different importance? Does like, there's only so many people who can say they have any. So I'm just wondering sort of what that is for you. The thing that was kind of stunning to me this second time was hearing pretty quickly that I was the first woman to win in both categories ever. Oh, wow. So there's two general categories. One is arts and letters and the other is journalism. Seven men had done it before me. Hmm. And I was sort of like, how is that possible that I'm the first woman? I didn't you know, my girls were very excited. I have two daughters, but I was like, <laughs> I don't know whether to be excited or depressed by the yeah. fact that Pulitzer's have been around for more than a hundred years and I'm the first woman to do that. But I don't know. I'm still kind of stunned by it all, to be mm -hmm. honest. 
I'm extremely grateful and I feel that um, I, I, I keep thinking back though to like Dasani's reaction and what it means to her and what it probably means to most of the world, which is very different than what it means to kind of the elite part of uh, society that cares about prizes and, and, um, and so it's, you know, I, I think it's just always good to keep it in perspective and mm. to never believe you've arrived no matter what you win because the thing that I think makes me an okay journalist is my insecurity, actually. It's mm. it's feeling like I, 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 I'm not good enough. I've got to do better. I've got to work harder. I've got to keep going and getting that story because it's, it's not there yet mm. um, to not feel – complacent in any way or like I've arrived or that I'm um, at the top of my profession or any of that crap. I just, it's not, it's not what, why we do what we do to win, but it, it does, it definitely helps Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. it opens doors, right? So yeah. I'm very, very, very grateful, but I'm also, maybe I'm just a little bit in denial of it all. Like I just <laughs> think I, I, I'm really going to just do best you know, continuing in my own sort of just um, quirky way, doing the work that I do and not really worrying too much about what the rest of the world thinks. Yeah. Yeah. It. Okay. So this will, this will humble you again. This is my favorite question. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Okay. Here's a weird one. Okay. I often get the word receipt. Wrong. Oh, that's hard. It's the E and the I, right? Yes. Yeah. I don't know why. And it's like this thing. And I, yeah. Yeah. That's there a good go. one. That's a good one. I don't think anyone's <laughs> ever said that on here before. Um, there's no weird words. We've I've, we've got run the gamut. I'm sure um, it's words like solipsistic or other no, words that people give A big give you. one is restaurant. That's like the really. one that comes up the most, restaurant. And it's, it's uh, to me, I'm a terrible speller, but that is like the one word I can spell. So every time someone says it, I'm like, ha, ha, ha I'm smarter than you. <laughs> <laughs> but usually I'm like, yeah, no, I can't spell that either. Okay. I just have a few more quick questions for you. And one of them, this is sort of a big question. I should have asked it earlier, but I am so curious. For you, what is the big takeaway? What was your big takeaway from the work that you did in, in Invisible Child? I think my biggest takeaway is something that relates to your first question, which was, what is this book about? And my struggle to answer it. Part mm. of that is that it, we find ourselves rooted in these sort of labels in as a means for describing what something's about. This is a story of a homeless girl. This is a story about poverty. These labels, homeless and poverty, are really just invitations into a much bigger story where issues overlap, where history um, rears itself. And I think that that's what it is. It's to get people to see past those labels and join in the kind of struggles and the acts of survival that Dasani's life represents. Mm. And to connect with her enough that her problems become the reader's problems too, mm -hmm. um, in a way that is lasting, uh, that where you can't shake her or Supreme or Chanel or others in the book 
long after you've read the last page. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I would hope comes of this. For people who love Invisible Child, what books would you recommend to them that are maybe in conversation or in the same world or whatever that question means to you? I would recommend There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz, Random Family by Adrienne Nicola Blanc, and Evicted by Matthew Desmond as the starting point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Random Family I bought for my husband for Christmas and I now have to read it. Everyone keeps telling me, but I'm like, I'm not quite ready. I'm still living with Dasani and her family. I'm like, (laughs) I just, I need a little bit of a break before I go back because I want to give it its full due. You know, I'm like, I don't want it to be too similar. Um, And The Warmth of Other Sun Spices, of course. That's a, that's like, I refer to that book as a book of my life. It's like one of the most important things I've ever read. Yeah. I just love that book so much. I meant to ask you about that. I saw that um, on Instagram, I think you put that on Instagram. Can you tell me about that? I I don't know. It's just what I, because people are like, what's your favorite book? And I, it's too hard, but there are books that like feel deeply meaningful to me in my life that have like meant so much. Blood in the Water is also a book of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, trying to think what else those are the two that I usually say there there are others I think Just Mercy is probably one um I think John Krakauer is an author of my life I love his work Mm -hmm. so much and he made me love reading so sometimes it's like maybe not the book but it just like it's not fair to say that it's my favorite but it's like a book that when I think about who I am and like who I want to be and why I am how I am those are the books that like Fill, fill me. I, I also would say that Gone with the Wind is a book of my life. I saw that. I love <laughs> I that book that, so yeah. much. I, I, I just, I love the movie. It was a thing that my father and I did and my father since passed. And so I always, you know, it's just like one of those books that even though I know it's so problematic and, you know, please ca- cancel me, but it's still a book <laughs> of my life. And like, it's so meaningful to me anyway. So that's why I use that word because it's not my, my favorite book. I don't know. Something lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Two more questions, and we'll get out of here. Who is the coolest person to express interest in your book? Oh, God, that's a hard one. I'll tell you what Sani would say, which is Barack Obama. That's what I would sure. say, Barack Obama. I mean, I, I can't I, – I mean, that's immediately who comes to mind. Yeah. Um, there have been plenty of people who have expressed interest who should be named, but I want to just stop there with Barack. Yeah. That was – that, that was right. a seminal moment. That feels right. I always get so excited when he picks a book that I've read. I'm like, oh, my God, we're twins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last question. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? The first person who comes to mind is Dasani's late grandmother, Joni Joanne Sykes. I wish she could have read this book. Mm. She's such an incredible figure in the book, too. She's so present. Um, All right. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Not just because it, I believe, honors her life, but it is the story of her father and her mother and her ancestors. And she never got to know that story. So, you know, that's who I would pick. This book is so incredible. I hope that everyone will read it. I hope that if you are a person who is scared of nonfiction, that you will trust me, that it reads like a novel. And I mean that for people who are scared of nonfiction, but for people who love nonfiction, it reads like fantastic nonfiction as well. Um, It's long. 
Do not be scared. You can do it. It reads so fast. I listened to some of the audiobook, which is also fantastic. I just, the whole thing is great. It was such a meaningful reading experience for me this year. And Andrea, I'm so grateful that you answered those questions about ethics because I know that I'm sure it's not easy, but I, this book, more than being a story about poverty, also it did bring up all of that stuff for me. So for anyone who's looking for a book to really leave you thinking, Invisible Child, it's, that's the one. You got to have to read it. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Tracy. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Andrea for being my guest. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Gwyneth Stansfield for helping to make this interview possible. Remember, Lisa Lucas will return on September 28th to discuss our book club pick, the page-turning thriller, The Trees by Percival Everett. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas. 